Hello, my name is Sarah Mukherjee and this is Sustainable Matters, the podcast all about big ideas and hope for the planet. A show where we are realistic about the challenges we face, but also optimistic about the future. I spend quite a lot of time, like most people can, go, why, 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 why is this happening or that happening or the other? And quite early on in my life, the instruction to turn that into, right, okay, let's get things done, was there. This week, our guest is Polly Billington, Labour's parliamentary candidate for East Thanet at the next election. Polly worked as a reporter for the BBC for many years, where I and she crossed paths before leaving to become a special advisor to Ed Miliband. She was the media director for his successful bid to lead the Labour Party in 2010. In 2016, she founded UK 100, a network of local government leaders in the UK who've committed to ambitious action on climate, clean energy and clean air. She was the CEO until 2022. If everything is done from Whitehall, it won't work. We need to make sure that we're building consensus in local communities that this is something that will definitely benefit them, their economy and their health, as well as the environment. Now, Polly was nominated to take part in Sustainable Matters by Rachel Kite. So I started my chat with Polly by letting her hear exactly why she was picked as Rachel's hero. Polly Billington is one of those hyper-articulate doers. This is somebody who's not afraid to get her hands dirty, roll her sleeves up. Uh, she refracts light rather than absorbs it. She doesn't, she doesn't need to take a lot of the credit. And she has done an amazing job in the last uh, decade or more in helping towns and cities around the UK to really get their head around the climate challenge. And I think that that's been absolutely foundational, stalwart, absolutely essential work that if it wasn't there, we would really miss it. She's also prepared to stick her neck out in, a, in an electoral environment and uh, has been involved in, at the municipal level in elected politics and is now going to be a candidate in the next general election. And I think we need more people like Polly in Parliament because they've done it, they've seen it, they're rooted, they're grounded and um, and I think she's just a brilliant communicator as well. So um, an enormous admiration for the uh, beauty and toughness that is Polly. Gosh, I mean, like I think Rachel is amazing. So the fact that she said such lovely things about me, I'm just, I'm feeling a little bit pink. I don't blush easily. It's really lovely sometimes to hear back from somebody that you respect and admire that you've been recognised and you've been seen, you've been heard, because she's right, I'm not that bothered about who gets the credit as long as stuff gets done. But it is nice sometimes for somebody to go, oh, yeah, you know all this stuff that's happened? It's because of this person and this person, and for that to be acknowledged. Partly because if you don't acknowledge the people, it's not about the ego, it's about making sure you can get more stuff done and that you can understand what it was that made that possible and get the right people into the right places to do the stuff that needs to be done. That's it. That's the only thing that matters, really. And it's lovely to hear something like Rachel, who like, does really, really big global stuff, understand and explain so well the thinking behind what, what I've been doing. I'm really pleased because you were the first person who came to her mind when we were talking about her heroes. And I should declare an interest, of course, because you and I have known each other yeah. off and on for many years because we were yeah. both 
BBC correspondent. And I want to start by taking you back even further than that, because that desire for equality, to call stuff out, you mentioned that in your videos about your candidacy as well for Thanet. Where do you think that comes from, that desire to get things done and also to right wrongs? Oh, I mean, I know this is what a lot of women, a lot of women say, and sometimes when they say it, I think it's really cheesy. But the reality is, it's my mum, and I'll tell you why. Because there's a very, very specific moment. Right, we were in the park, Battersea Park. I was about four or five, and we found another little girl who was lost and was crying for her mum. And I, in a spirit of toddler empathy, burst into tears. So my mum, rather than having like one lost child in tears she now had two children in tears which was really not helpful so she got down on my level got me by the shoulders and said this is not helping we need to find her mum so basically I've been told from a very early age there's no point crying about it you've got to get on and do something she did actually say there's no point crying about this we need to find her mum so I spend quite a lot of time like most people can go why oh why oh why oh why isn't this happening or that happening the other and quite early on in my life the instruction to turn that into right okay let's get things done was there and you know the sense of justice I remember my mum coming back from parents evening saying your form teacher said you've got a very strong sense of justice and I went oh yes because I've had a bit of an argument in RE um so I mean I've learned I still got older to pick my battles and to not have a fight with everyone about everything but yeah, a, a strong sense of justice was built in and a strong sense of practicality about we can spend our time worrying about the world or we can go on and do something about it. And I did get that from my mum and my dad. But very particularly, that story is, you know, and we all know the women's burden is, is rarely halved, more often is doubled because somebody else has screwed something up. So I take that lesson from, from that moment, which is don't add to the problems, take them away. I wonder if you could spool forward to BBC. Now, you could argue that the press, the media, broadcast media has filled a hole that used to be there about when political movements were mass, mass movements, had millions of people in them. But that aside, do you think that the BBC was what you had hoped it would be in terms of being able to uncover those wrongs and take some action? Yes up to a point but there was a reason why I left and I think that's also you've got to be honest about where you are in your life what you want to do and what you want to achieve and I I've been a journalist for 15 years with the BBC by the time I left and I'd had an extraordinary number of opportunities to be able to I don't think you write wrongs but what you do is you reveal them and that felt to me like an important part of the process you know good responsible democratic processes in a free society journalists should do that they should find things that are wrong and tell people about them and I'm you know you will have had this same experience where I remember going to uh, my editor at the Today program when I found this appalling egregious example of terrible injustice and uh, he said yeah I know but how many people does it happen to and I said, well, if this only happens to half a dozen, I think that's half a dozen too many. And I think it should be on the radio. And it only ended up on it. And you know as well what it's like, the running order. I wanted it to be on at 10 to 8 or 10 past 8. And it ended up at 10 to 7, which we know is almost a death shot, right? But I knew I was onto something because not only he might have sneered at it, he, 
because it was women who were experiencing this. It was when the Home Office Minister, who now happens to be a good mate, but a Home Office Minister at the time, because it was back in the Labour years, phoned me up on a Sunday afternoon because he got wind of the story. And he tried to explain to me why it was absolutely impossible for the rules to change. And at the time was, you know, sometimes you just think, oh, my God, have I got it wrong? Because they're telling me I've got it wrong. And your sense of confidence in your own judgment can be undermined, especially if your editor's kind of gone, really? <laughs> There's so many pressures just to kind of go, no, keep it down. Don't cause any trouble. Don't change anything. Yeah. Anyway, I called it and said, I know you think it's uh, there's no possible way it should happen, and I know you don't think it's important enough, but I'm going to put this piece together. And it went out at 10 to 7, and uh, they changed the law. Wow. They didn't change it as much as it should have been, and there's still loads of women who are very, really very vulnerable, and it's been changed back again by subsequent governments. So it, you know, there are still enormous amounts of unfairness around the situations that women get into when they are vulnerable in domestic work, which is ultimately what it was about. But... I helped a bit. But what I've found, and this is what I've found subsequently, is that I was just one bit, one chink in the chain. And it's very satisfying and you can get very good at that. But it's a kind of super specialized bit of the campaign chain. And what I've been able to do since is kind of become a bit of an overseer of the chain and work out all the other bits that have got to make a really successful campaign happen and also not claim credit because it's OK. I, you know, That law was changed, but it wasn't changed for long. And I was only one bit of it. And there are people who continue to campaign on those issues because the struggle takes many forms and it doesn't really end in lots of different ways. So you've got to keep finding the best way to make things go right. I was really interested in that story because, first of all, it highlights your desire to change, but also the amount of pressure. And I absolutely know where you're coming from on this as a working class woman in what was, and I suspect still is, quite a middle-class organisation, you're kind of put in your box a bit? Well, I'm not going to claim to be working class, Sarah, right? My parents are teachers. Literally, only, frankly, in BBC political programmes, could I be seen as some kind of crazy, risky hire? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean. You know, I went to an all-girls comprehensive school in south-west London, Mm. but when I rocked up, because I'd moved to London from Manchester, they literally thought I was from the north. You know why? Because I could read a map and knew where things were outside of the M25 and Oxford Colleges. Yeah. So it's only in the BBC that I'd be seen as a risky hire. And I know I could see how challenging it was for people with much, with many fewer connections than mine. I didn't have any really, but, you know, I was lucky enough to have been taught at an early age to like ask and be cheeky and be determined and persistent but those are middle class skills frankly because if you're working class they're seen as a little bit dodgy and a little bit you know and it'll be as much to do with your accent as to do with your skill set so did you get the difficult woman were you put in the difficult woman box of course I was of course I was but I, I do need to pay tribute to people who did actually see that there was going to be right fit for me because they were the ones who encouraged me to apply for the job at Radio 1 as first ever dedicated political correspondent for Newsbeat on Radio 1 in the run-up to the 2001 general election. Now, I was already way out of the target audience age group for Radio 1, but frankly, I needed to be to have the experience in order to be able to do that job. Mm. I had stopped listening to Radio 1 a long time before, and then I had to get back into it, and that was all really exciting and new, and to tell politics in a different way and remind myself 
why I wanted to do this thing in the first place, which is that no one should be in a position to say they didn't know when things get really sticky. And I got there and it was supposed to be kind of plain sailing up until the general election in 2001, which was, as we all know, quite a low key election in lots of ways. As long as you weren't a farmer, because if you remember, there was foot and mouth and that had to be delayed because of foot and mouth. But of course, you were covering that then. I was indeed, yes. <laughs> uh, but then out, literally out of a Manhattan sky came 9-11 and I ended up having to explain what the United Nations was, where Afghanistan was, who Osama bin Laden was. It was suddenly a very, very different job in amongst people reporting on Madonna's wedding. So it's easy to say everything was hard. And yes, it was hard. Also, I know that I had it much easier than women before me. I saw women 10, 15 years older than me battered by the, the realities of having to fight. But, you know, I've got a lot of breaks at the BBC. I might not have got all the breaks I wanted, but, you know, nothing goes entirely your way. And I was ready to move on when I was because I realised that I could no longer sit in editorial meetings with people who thought that David Cameron was going to be OK as the Prime Minister. Now, obviously, there have been plenty of people I sat next to because there's loads of Tories who work for the BBC. But once they were kind of swing voters and I was like, what? Seriously? If I'm not careful, I really am going to get characterised in the corner as the kind of mad ranty woman. <laughs> so that's not going to be good for me. It's not going to be good for the programme. I'm not going to be as, as helpful and useful. And then as it happened, the opportunity came up for me to work for Ed Miliband. And I, I went to work for the Labour government. Now, that point about no one should be in a position where they didn't know or could say they didn't know. Do you think there's a parallel there with climate activism at the moment? I mean, there seemed to be a lot of explanation, but very little explanation that encompasses wider society, particularly people of colour, particularly minoritised communities. I suppose there's two things I'd say. I got involved and interested in environmental politics in the late 80s. I am that old. And so I've seen the way that environmental politics and environmental communications has changed over time. And I've seen where it hasn't and how particular personalities understand the world, how they respond to the world, how therefore they communicate about the world and how they think about it. So for a lot of people, the doom and gloom is absolutely what motivates them. And I've sat through and bearing in mind, you know, in government, the most important thing You've got your hands on the levers of power. You want to do stuff. So sitting and listening to people going on about how everything was going to fry was not a motivator. It's a motivator for people for whom it's a motivator. But for people who are not motivated by that, it can be an absolute turn off. I think people know that it's going to be terrible. If people don't accept it's going to be terrible, telling them it's going to be terrible isn't going to shift them. And I think for a lot of people who are you know, there's that cartoon of somebody sat hunched over their laptop while their partner is in bed. And they say, come to bed. And say, yeah, but someone is wrong on the internet. Yes. You know, I could spend all my time trying to make sure that everybody is as freaked out as all the members of Friends of the Earth. But I, I know I'm on a hiding to nothing about that. I need them to do the thing that needs to be done, almost regardless of the reasons they do it. And I've got to find out their motivations in order to be able to drive good behaviours rather than because they're doing it for the right reasons. I can't peer into people's souls. What I can do is encourage them to do the thing that will not only avert extraordinary environmental destruction, but economic disaster and 
a genuine threat to so many things that we really value. And that's not just the things that motivate us as environmentalists, which is nature and beauty and all those kind of things. It's like, will you be safe in your home? Will you still have a job to go to? Will your children still have a future? Now, those are the genuine questions that most people think about, about how they'll get to the end of the week or get to the end of the month. So let's frame it like that. So that's why some of us can sound like tediously boring about, well, let's lower bills and make energy secure and keep our homes cozy or comfy. And I don't spend that much time talking about the wonders of nature because the wonders of nature are things that absolutely motivate and move me. But if they don't motivate and move everybody, I know that security and future of their families will be the biggest motivator for most people. And that time in government, which you've just mentioned, hands on the levers of power. I mean, again, I suppose it's the same question as when you joined the BBC. Was it what you expected or did it feel like pushing a cart horse uphill? Well, I remember meeting one of my colleague special advisors in a corridor soon after I joined, who, when I'd been a journalist, treated me with not quite Malcolm Tucker levels of contempt, but, you know, you kind of average new Labour press officer, journalist relationship. Yeah, I know that person, all yeah. those people. Yeah, You know that person well. <laughs> and then suddenly it was like, hi, how are you doing? Welcome, da-da-da. And I just thought, this is like I've walked through the looking glass. And then he said, it's the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? Because every day, I mean, I, when I first started working, I was in the cabinet office and uh, you don't have very exciting stories, but you find a lot of them. Yeah. They, they just whiz past your desk every day. And most of your time, it's making sure that you don't commit news rather <laughs> that you do. <laughs> that was another part of the kind of through the looking glass. It's all about communications, but you are doing communications in a very, very different way for a very different purpose. Mm. And that regearing was not straightforward. Did that feel like the right purpose though? I mean, again, with your your deep driver to right wrongs, to expose injustice? It did actually. It did because soon after I joined, I, I mean, I joined at the end of 2007, but I had a, the run on Northern Rock and then we had the global financial crash. And I thought literally there's nobody <laughs> who can sort this out apart from Gordon Brown. <laughs> whatever his faults and remember everybody thought that it was useless at the same time as we were basically holding the world's global economy together apart from the few people who did really understand the economy around Gordon who were like right let's hold him up and everybody else beyond that needed to go like he's the only show in town let's just hold him up and get this through and that's really important mm-hmm. because I'm now on the door seven people say aha there was no money left and I'm like listen jobs were saved homes were saved futures were secured because of really big stuff that was done at that time and when we look around at the state of this country it's not because we spent the money then it's because we didn't spend the money later our country was so lacking in resilience when something like the pandemic happened combined with something like ukraine and when people are now saying to me nothing is working straightforwardly nothing is working because actually our public realm and our public services, and our infrastructure, our public goods that everybody benefits from. And if we don't invest in them, then we all reap the consequences. But those consequences are much, much worse for people who have less than people who have more. Because the people who have more, broadly speaking, will insulate themselves from it. 
I think what's interesting and one of the reasons why I'm sort of passionate as an environmentalist about pulling those people into the story is that I use the example of cholera in the 19th century. The rich just used to leave London for the summer. Oh, no, you know, it's, it's sickness season, right? We'll go to Harrogate and to Bath and to Brighton. And they kept coming back and finding that their servants had died. So they couldn't actually insulate themselves from this problem eternally. And so somebody needed to do something in order to be able to clean up London. And hence you have the sewers and you have Bazalgette and that kind of vision. People do need to understand that they cannot insulate themselves from this problem. That's the worst dystopian J.G. Ballard vision I've got, is that the richest will end up living on mountaintops in helicopters while everybody else is outside. I also think extraordinarily this is a major opportunity for us to be able to do some significant economic rebalancing. And you've got to be able to do it in the right way. But when you are rewiring an economy, why don't you just think about some of the fundamentals that haven't been going right for a very long time? Factor those in when you're doing your rethinking rather than just doing a bit of a tweak. I'm really interested in the way that you describe what happened to, to Gordon Brown. You know, people make instant judgments these days with the 24-hour news circle. You've got four days or five days as a leader to, to begin to make an impression. And despite having seen that, you're passionate enough about this to stand yourself as an MP. Does that toxicity worry you? Yeah, yeah, of course it does. Of course it does. Oh, it's a big toll, isn't it, on you, on the family, on your relatives, on people who love you? Yeah, it's really hard. I think I was, you know, going back to those women that I knew that were like 10, 15 years more senior to me at the BBC, the women who've gone before me in politics, you know, we stand on the shoulders of absolute giants. But we also need to recognise that the patriarchy takes many forms and it doesn't go away, it just changes. It's a shapeshifter. So then they were dealing with some of the eternal things, like don't worry, the pretty little head about that, dear, or, mm. you know. Two sugars, love. Two sugars, love. Or, yeah, yeah, can you make the tea? And now it's just, they don't say it out loud, but it's basically how very dare you be in this space. How dare you have an opinion? How dare you come back to me saying, well, this is an opportunity. So the fury and the loathing of simply you know, we joke about women having an opinion, but also it's not just women having an opinion. It's women who are being in control of the facts. Yeah. I'm literally, I've got the situation where the guy that I'm up against in Thanet is claiming that the wind doesn't blow very much in the winter. Now, it's easily contradicted by the facts by checking in with the Met Office who will say, it's pretty windy in the UK in the winter. In fact, it's windier in the UK in the winter than it is in the summer. But he's using that as a kind of drive-by, throwaway comment in order to be able to justify his scepticism about renewable energy. Now, again, I don't want to be that one of those people who spends all their time rebutting people on the internet, right? That's not my job. <laughs> but it does, if you are in command of the facts, but also particularly importantly in politics, it's a revision of how things could be done differently. A lot of people don't want to hear that from women. Well, I'd love to hear yours, in fact, because that vision, you've worked on that. You've, you know, it's been a deep thread throughout your career since you left the BBC, and particularly, I mean, Rachel mentioned your work with communities, communities outside big cities as well. How do you see that in that vision of a vibrant, sustainable, net zero 
biodiverse world? What do communities look like and what would you fight for in terms of the work that you've done up to date? Well, I think the important thing about communities, one of the reasons why it sort of goes back to lots of the things that I've been talking about, the more people have a say, the more leadership you can demonstrate. So I think one of the things I've found quite important to understand is that people don't expect you, if you're elected or you're putting yourself forward, they don't expect you, reasonable people anyway, and that's most people, to be able to solve everything. But they do expect to be heard and then they want to have agency. Yeah, and to be heard and for their position and their experience to be acknowledged. And I think the greatest risk is the kind of, well, they do it in China. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, I'd like quite like to be able to wake up with both my kidneys, frankly. And you can't be sure that you'll do that if we had the same system as China. So this dirigiste, let's just go for it, ignoring anybody, everybody's wishes, which there is an instinct and a trend of that in some environmentalists. I will just absolutely say stop right there. If you do things like that, you will not design things in order to be able to make things work for everybody. Yeah. You need to have those voices. And I've also had a situation, particularly when I've said, well, there's only men around this table talking about transport. I work in local government, politics, energy and transport. All of those are male dominated. All of them benefit from having more women, not just a woman, more women at the table. You know why? Because transport is a women's issue. Designing transport is a women's issue. Designing energy is a women's issue. You know why? Because we make decisions about how we go around in the world and how we keep our homes and our workplaces comfortable for everybody. We have different needs physically. We have different needs from other people. And we have different needs socially because we have to think about our safety and security in a different way. So if you want, you can have all the clean buses you like. But if there's soggy sofas in alleyways on the way to the bus stop and it's an unreliable bus and it's expensive and you don't have enough people on the bus so that you feel scared when you're on the bus and there's no shelter and when you get off there's a deep, steep curb and all of that, nobody really is going to use the bus. So there'll be a few people. And I really, really, really annoy transport planners because what they want to do is like do it all from the top. But we need to have more transport planners who think, like, hang on, if I had a buggy, how would it work? If I was getting off the bus at 10 o'clock at night, how would I feel? If I was arriving at this bus stop on my own after dark, what does that experience look like? So much of the net zero agenda could be tackled without necessarily doing anything about so-called emissions. You'd be just designing places better that people could actually live in and work in better. Yeah. Greater connectivity. Um, not only in terms of transport abroad, also in terms of broadband, cosier homes, cosy, comfy, because we'll need to make sure that they're comfy in the summer as well as the winter. Now, which of these things are things that actually should entirely be designed by one particular segment of the population? It's absolutely atrocious. And that and we wonder why things don't work, because <laughs> they've been only designed for a minor fraction of people. And we need to get everybody else involved too. So... Looking back, what is the thing, you know, in, in this really interesting point in your career where going forward, there's uh, lots of different potential paths that you could be taking and looking back, you've done a, you know, amazing work so far. What is the thing that you're proudest of? And what is the bit of learning that you think you would want to 
pass on to the four-year-old or the 14-year-old or the 24-year-old you? Well, I think, I don't know whether there's anything I'd say to them to do differently, only I'd ask them to do it sort of slightly faster. <laughs> and that's because, that's because I'm impatient, I'm in a hurry, and I, and I wish... I wish I'd learned some things just a little bit earlier. Like what? Um, about being determined and persistent and how politics works. Because you have to also remember, I think people sort of think you've got to be a specialist and everything. I stopped studying science at the age of 16, right? I didn't study politics at all, ever. So I'm not a specialist. But what I am good at is listening and learning and picking things up and what I would like to have done is learn some of those rules a little bit earlier because I think I would have been able to get more done faster. <laughs> it's only really my impatience. <laughs> but in terms of things that I'm really proud of, I'm really proud of establishing UK 100. We've made an essential part of the environmental and political ecosystem in this country. Today, the day we're talking, Chris Gidmore, Tory MP, and Ben Houshan, a Tory Metro Mayor are both talking about how government needs to let local government get on with doing net zero. I could not have imagined us having that said when we established UK 100 back in 2016. There is so much more that needs to be done in that space, but that is a really important bit of legacy from my perspective because local government now has a voice and an authority on net zero and environmental activity and an understanding about its role because we've done the research on what their powers are and how they can use them. I'm hoping that they will, they, local government, we, the Parliamentary Labour Party, will be able to influence the future Take Back Control Bill to absolutely build in net zero powers and competencies at local level. So we've got that transformative structures, which I know sound really boring, but they're really important because they go back to this point about community. If everything is done from Whitehall, it won't work. We need to make sure that we're building consensus in local communities, that this is something that will definitely benefit them, their economy and their health, as well as the environment. And I keep saying to people, if there's three things that matter, our economy, our health and our environment. And if you're going to do something, if it doesn't improve two of those things, you probably shouldn't be doing it. And once you've got that framework, I want to name check Judith Blake, leader of Leeds, who gave me that. There's nothing new in politics, but you should always credit the people who, who you learnt it from. I think that's really important. So the legacy will be UK 100, but also in government, people sort of think that government doesn't make any difference. Every time I see solar panels on housing association or council house roofs, I know we made a difference because that's something I literally went into the solar team and they said, oh, well, this is just for a few middle class people who fancy it. And I'm saying, well, then we're not doing it right. If we're not making sure that people can see a way of being part of this transformation, that they get a benefit on their homes, then we're not doing it right. So change the rules. And I suppose my last thing would be we had a secret centre a couple of years ago with my team and my secret centre present was a mug which said change the effing rules on it because <laughs> the team had heard me use this in a funders meeting, which unsurprisingly didn't necessarily get us the money we needed because I've been too blunt but that's what needs to happen the rules need to change that's what I'm here for and one more question if I may we have a lot of students and early career professionals brilliant 
are you members and outside the organization listening? You are an amazing networker. You have a fantastic network and really brilliant at bringing people together. It's a big barrier for some people, particularly people who haven't learned those skills that you were alluding to earlier. How do you go about networking? How do you go about bringing those people together? I was so shy when I was in my teens that I couldn't actually phone up the hairdresser for an appointment. So I had, to, I had to learn. Bearing in mind, then I became a journalist, so I had to do cold calling. In between times, I worked in marketing and in the call centre, so that helped. But when I, when I realised it, it was not about me. Yeah. What's the worst they can do? You walk away and that person doesn't like you. Well, you know you. And being paternally curious, reminding yourself that it's not about you, it's about them. And always ask for advice before you ask for a favour. Because people really, really, really like to be heard. You can find out more about Polly's campaigning in East Thanet and about UK 100 in the show notes. I was really struck by her approach to activism and could easily see what Rachel Kite meant when she said she reflects rather than absorbs attention. And her thoughts around making climate change adaptation, a way of really changing society to a more just transition, really struck a chord with me, as I'm sure they will with many, many listeners. Now, for more information about the podcast and what AIMA does and how we could get you on your first or your next step of your sustainable career, well, head on over to AIMA.net. My name is Sarah Mukherjee. Thank you so much for listening to Sustainable Matters. And on the next episode, we hear from food campaigner, businessman and writer Henry Dimbleby, author of the National Food Strategy and the best-selling book Ravenous, who tells us his reasons to be cheerful about the possibility of change. I am uh, a pretty hopeful person generally. I think if you look back at where we've come from as a human species, the problems that we've overcome, I think our uh, our resilience, our imagination, our ability to solve problems so far has always been a match for our ability to destroy things. And uh, I, I have faith that that will continue to be the case. Now, to make sure you don't miss any of the episodes, follow Sustainable Matters wherever you find your podcasts. And don't forget to rate, review and recommend it to a friend or colleague. Sustainable Matters, a podcast series full of solutions and optimism for a more sustainable world. Brought to you by AIMA, transforming the world to sustainability.